just kind of awkward all weekend. So if I don't need to use it, I'd rather not, if that's okay with you all. Is this at the back, we're all right? Okay, good. Uh, we're going to get started right away because it is now nine o'clock. So my name is Bethany Solaretter. I'm a student at, uh, or I'm not, I'm a graduated student at Regent College. I've just finished. <laughs> I've just finished my master's in Christian studies in interdisciplinary, uh, looking primarily at evolution and the problem of evil. So this presentation is actually like a very, very um, large compression of my thesis, which was evolutionary theodicy towards an evangelical perspective. So welcome this morning. We're going to be discussing a very difficult subject uh, this morning, and as just sort of a general caveat before we begin, uh, if I say something that's offensive or hurtful or that you think is really, really trite, please come talk to me. Um, I'm still learning how to articulate my thoughts about these serious issues in ways that are both pastorally sensitive and academically rigorous. So if I totally mess up, please come talk to me and teach me better language about how to talk about these things. I mean, I'm 25 talking about the problem of evil, so, you know, keep, keep that in mind. All right, that being said, let's jump in. We're looking this morning at the problem of creation through evolution. Simply put, if God created through an evolutionary process, it means that the forces which shape evolution were also created by him. It means that pain, death, and natural disasters, such as earthquakes, were part of God's creative process. Now, this poses two problems. First, the Bible talks about death as a result of divine punishment for sin, not as part of God's creative expression. Second, our experience of these realities is rarely good. We don't like pain, and for the most part, uh, death terrifies us. We've seen vividly in the past year the destruction earthquakes can cause in Haiti, Chile, China, and elsewhere. So how in the world can we call this good? Wouldn't the world be a better place if we didn't have earthquakes? What if we didn't feel pain? Wouldn't we be happier if we did not die? If the lion did not rip apart the lamb and the deer was safe from the wolf? These are some of the questions we will explore this morning. And for those of you who like structure, here is where we are going. If this, oh, I did not even set this up. Look at that. All right. For those of you who like structure, this is where we're going. We're going to begin by a quick survey of how theologians throughout history have spoken of natural evils. Then we will examine how modern science critiques these views and show a different perspective of the very good creation. Finally, we're going to look at the theology of creation, asking what an evolutionary creation has, what sort of value it has over a static creation that would be independently created. And for this, we're going to use the theological framework of the church father, Irenaeus of Lyon. For those of you who like argument, my thesis is this, that pain and death are good and necessary realities in the existence of living creatures, and they are not the result of a cosmic fall that is not a result of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, um, I find that the world which we inhabit is indeed very good, although I maintain that humans are marred by sin. 
the goodness of this world is recognized through an Irenaean perspective of the good but not perfect creation. I also believe that any theodicy worth its salt is not complete if it doesn't also point forward to the new life, the new creation in which all will be made new and in which death will not be a necessary part of life. So that's what we're going to be going through. Now, there's one necessary distinction that I absolutely must make before we move on. And uh, I would like to draw a distinction between moral evil and natural evil. Moral evil are those evils which result from acts for which humans can be held morally responsible. These actions include stealing, violent crime, sexual immoralities, or any other action which is taken in direct rebellion to God's revealed will. Uh, this type of evil would also include counting secondary and tertiary effects of these actions. So if, for example, pillaging the Earth's resources to feed an insatiable materialist demand is sinful, then the resulting air pollution and, and water pollution would be the results of moral evil. The other category is natural evil, and this re refers to all types of painful or destructive action that are not the result of moral choice, but are either instinctually driven or are the results of natural processes. So these could include predatory attacks, earthquakes, tsunamis, parasites, viruses, and the like. Now this talk deals only with this second type of evil. I'm asking why a good God would create a world with these realities rather than one without them. I do not deal with moral evil, so if you're wondering why you know, God allows war, uh, you'll have to ask somebody else. So let's talk, what have theologians had to say about the natural world and about natural evil? Well, theologians, both academic and popular, both ancient and contemporary, have almost universally affirmed the connection between sin and physical death. Drawing from passages such as Genesis 3 and Romans 5 and 8, they argue that death came through sin. In regards to the natural world, this means invoking a cosmic fall scenario in which not only death came through the fall, but earthquakes, tornadoes, pain, predation, and disease as well. Let's listen to what John Calvin has to say. He says, for it appears that all the evils of the present life, which experience proves to be innumerable, have proceeded from the same fountain. The inclemency of the air, frost, thunders, unseasonable rains, drought, hail, and whatever is disorderly in the world are the fruits of sin. Nor is there any other primary cause of diseases. In fact, Calvin elsewhere argues that the tilt in the Earth's axis is also a result of divine judgment on sin. Equally, any violence present in the world is seen as inconsistent with divine creation. For example, Karl Barth writes, creation means peace, peace between the creator and creatures, and peace among creatures themselves. He continues, carnivorousness presupposes the killing of animals, and this as the irrevocable annihilation of beings which have independent life as opposed to plants is a breach of this peace. The creation of the cosmos by God does not envision this breach. So predation is also seen as part of the effects of the fall. Now both Calvin and Bart blame the existence of these so-called evils on human sin. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and everything 
came crashing down. But as science has discovered more and more evidence that death predated human existence by, you know, some three billion years or so, we've had to review that. There's overwhelming evidence that the world looked vicious long ago. Evidence like cancer in dinosaur bones some 65 million years ago, and, you know, killer teeth, like this one from the saber-toothed tiger on animals well over a million and a half years ago. Um, as a side note, I heard Dennis Lamoureux always brought these to a conference, so I didn't want to be left out. Brought one along. But why did the world look so conflicted before humans ever came on the scene, were able to sin? Well, some theologians have pointed to a satanic influence. Let's look at what C.S. Lewis, who rather typical of evangelical theologians, has to say. It seems to me, therefore, a reasonable supposition that some mighty created power had already been at work for ill on the material universe or the solar system, or at least the planet Earth, before ever man came on the scene. If there is such a power, as I myself believe, it may well have corrupted the animal creation before man appeared. So, in fact, the, creator, the created order is not very good, as the Bible attests, but rather it's corrupted. Finally, I think T.F. Torrance sums this section up nicely when he writes, The cross of Christ tells us unmistakably that all physical evil, not only pain, suffering, disease, corruption, death, and of course cruelty and venom in animals, as well as human behavior, but also natural calamities, devastations and monstrosities, are an outrage against the love of God and a contradiction of good order in his creation. There are many more we could talk about, but for the sake of time, we, we must move on. I'd also like to note that there are some who have given other views, namely people like N.T. Wright or Lauren Wilkinson, but their views have certainly always been in the minority. Now, on the other side of things, uh, we have scientists who talk about these same phenomena of, of natural evil. And I've divided up the categories into general natural evils, that is, big planet-wide problems with planet-wide consequences, and individual natural evils, which affect individuals more directly. Uh, today, we will look at just three of, of many possible issues. I would have liked to um, have included, hang on a second here. PowerPoint is hating me. Okay, moving on. Um, I would have liked to include predation in this talk, but we simply don't have time to do justice to the argument, so we're going to skip that one. Let's talk about earthquakes. Uh, this year, in particular, we've seen their devastating effects around the world. Many of us would imagine that a world without earthquakes would be preferable to a world with them. So let's ask, what would a world without earthquakes look like? Uh, since um, first of all, a world without earthquakes would look like a world without plate tectonics. Um, I'm assuming that since you guys are all scientists, you understand the basic concept of the continents are on moving plates that you know, are on a fluid mantle below and that the big plates crash into each other above, below, alongside. You guys know this. Um, but this process of, of plate tectonic movement has many effects. We see tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanic activity are just some of the ones, and they tend to be the ones that we focus on. What else does the plate, the plate cycle do? Well, plate tectonics, um, through the rotation of the mantle below, contributes to the magnetic field, 
which surrounds our planet, keeping the atmosphere in and warding off deadly cosmic rays from the sun, which would destroy life if they reached the planet. Also, the process of plates being forced down into the mantle and melting, while in other places the plates separate and allow the hot magma to rise and cool, uses up the heat produced by the interior radiation of the Earth. This process is actually so effective that it uses up almost 90% of the heat produced by the Earth's interior. Now, in comparison, on Venus, the lack of plate tectonics means that the same heat produced by the core does not get recycled. The pressure and the heat build up, and what happens is that the distinction between crust and mantle gets lost. Essentially, the whole planet goes molten, and, you know, scientists in their typically understated way, say, you know, there's a resurfacing event. Um, the rest of the time, when it's not molten lava, it is uh, the surface temperatures average around 500 degrees Celsius. Uh, there are many other advantages that we could talk about um, plate tectonics, but I don't have time to go over them. But let's leave it at this. On the left is a planet with plate tectonics and the occasional earthquake. On the right is a planet without them. So you choose. I think the point sort of makes itself. I don't want to under understate the great human and animal cost associated with that picture on the left, but if the alternative is the picture on the right, the question of bacterial cost, let alone human cost, becomes nonsensical. I would affirm that this world's plate tectonics are part of God's good creation. Okay, let's move out of the realm of general planetary-wide forces and move into the realm of the individual. Let's talk about pain. We would instinctively, you know, if we were asked, would you like to live without pain, we'd all instinctively be like, yes, please, you know, sign me up. But like plate tectonics, the reality of a world without pain is not as idyllic as we would imagine. In the case of earthquakes, I looked at a world with and without plate tectonics. So let's do the same with the individuals in pain. Uh, but first, I need to make uh, another quick distinction. Pain and suffering are not the same thing. I will be dealing with pain, which is a sensation your brain receives of your pain nerves being stimulated. Suffering, however, is the psychological state of anguish, which is sometimes coupled with pain. So pain and suffering are not the same thing. And you can have pain without suffering, um, which actually is the effect that a lobotomy has. And you can also have suffering without pain. So you can think of phantom limb pain. So what does a life without pain look like? Well, basically, it looks like leprosy. Leprosy is a bacteria that resides in the pain nerves in the body and causes them to die. That's actually all it does. It, it kills pain nerves. All the damage that we associate with leprosy, you know, fingers and toes falling off, diseased skin, missing limbs, those don't come from the leprosy itself, but rather from the result of the patients not feeling pain. They burn themselves and they don't pull back. They walk on broken limbs and they don't notice. In one African clinic, the problem was rats were coming and chewing off patients' fingers in the night, and because they didn't feel pain, they just slept on. Pain is a good thing, developed through an evolutionary process to help us live good lives. Now, this is not to say that pain never goes wild. 
it does. And with uh, chronic pain or things like torture, pain can, in fact, become an enemy. But that does not undermine the fact that our ability to feel pain is a great gift. It just means that sometimes that gift becomes twisted in expression. The solution is not to wish for a world without pain, but a world where pain is rightly experienced. Pain is absolutely necessary for creatures who consciously move around. And every animal, I mean, not plants or bacteria, but animals have developed a central nervous system which process pain because it is, in fact, so necessary. Now, let me insert one caveat here. In no way do I want to say that just because pain is natural that we have no responsibility to relieve it. I can think of examples like childbirth, where people would want to argue that to use anesthetics is an aberration of the natural order. Now, that is not what I am arguing. I'm saying that pain serves important purposes which are needed for a good life. At the same time, we should look to the example of Jesus, who walked into pain-filled situations and brought healing, regardless of the cause of the suffering. In fact, the one time the disciples asked for the cause of an illness, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his father, that he was born blind? Jesus rebukes them, and he heals the man. It is our recognition of suffering, not necessarily pain, in the other, and our responsibility of stewardship to one another that must motivate our medical ethics. Uh, I wish I could say more here, but we have to move on. Now, if there's one thing that we would all point to and say, this is bad, it would be death. Death is one of the universal fears, and the taboos that our culture place around it make it even harder to think and talk about this in ways that are sensitive and helpful. So again, please be gracious with me. What does a world without death look like? Well, in fact, all of us have encountered a type of immortality which is possible in this world. I speak of cancer. Part of what makes cancer so very devastating is that cancer does not die on its own. A regular cell only divides around 50 times before going, uh, undergoing cellular suicide or, or apoptosis. This regular limitation of cellular life keeps our bodies alive and renewed. Cancer cells, however, have found a way around this, meaning that they divide indefinitely unless they're killed from the outside. They have found the way to cellular immortality, and we have seen the results that this wreaks upon humanity. If humans were immortal, we would wreak the same devastation on the rest of the world. We would be cancerous. The only alternative to this would be what St. Augustine imagined, that we would reproduce until a certain point and then remain a static population forever. Now, I agree this is a solution, but it means that there would be no new life. For new life to exist, you must also have death. Or to say this another way, the only reason we have a death problem is because we first have a life problem. There's no way around that in a world that operates on the laws of physics as they currently exist. However, however God chooses to re recreate the world, it would have to operate on different essential principles. But we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Now, as we look at these natural evils from a scientific perspective, it becomes clear that while some of them are bad, they're not evil. That is to say, they're not in conflict with God's purposes in the world. 
We have seen how theologians have argued that the existence of these things, earthquakes, pain, death, etc., are part of a cosmic fall. Instead, I would argue that they are part of the very good creation. While sin did enter the world, it did not cause a fundamental upset of planetary systems, and it did not ruin God's good creation, but only marred his image within it. For the same reason, I deny that there was any demonic element in evolutionary development. Now, Robert Farrar Capon suggests using the term natural badness rather than natural evil to describe these events. And I think this would be a helpful change to our language because these natural calamities are still part of the good creation, not a result of sin or judgment. Now, to go back to my initial question, could a good God have created through an evolutionary process that included pain, death, earthquakes, etc.? I think we can answer yes. Pain, death, predation, plate tectonics are all biological goods necessary to a good life in this world. But the second question that is brought up is, well, why? What is gained by an evolutionary process that is not present in an unchanging, static, perfect world? We'll now move into exploring this question. Why evolution? What value does it provide? Let us begin by looking at the theology of creation of Irenaeus of Lyon, second century church father. One of the most intriguing parts of his theology is that he understood the creation as being made in immaturity. Most of us would imagine the world of Genesis 1 and 2, or you know, the original creation, if you will, as a perfect world where everything is finally completed and where Adam and Eve were meant to live out their lives in a perfect static existence. Apart from multiplying and filling the earth, there's not a lot of room for growth, either physically or spiritually, for humans or for creation. In a radical reimagining of this story, Irenaeus pictures Adam and Eve as children in the garden. Not perfect, but as on a journey towards perfection. This is because perfection is not something you can give to an infant. It has to be journeyed towards. Irenaeus argues... For as it certainly is in the power of a mother to give strong food to her infant, but she does not do so, as the child is not yet able to receive more substantial nourishment, so also it was possible for God himself to have made man perfect from the first, but man could not receive this perfection, being as yet an infant. So God does not force something into humanity which they are not ready for. Perfection wasn't something that could be implanted. It had to be journeyed towards. And so Irenaeus gives us our first value of an evolving world, room for growth and development for humans. Now let's extend this argument to the wider cosmos. Just as humanity is not created in static perfection, the world around is not fully completed either. Colin Gunton, reflecting on Irenaeus, writes, creation is a project. It has somewhere to go. And there is value in saying that the creation has the freedom to grow, and the world is given this freedom through an evolutionary process. The cosmos, like humanity, is created very good, but it was not created in static perfection either. It was created immature, with freedom to develop. This giving of freedom and perhaps even limited autonomy to the creation is, I would argue, more consistent with the nature of divine love than a creation where everything is determined. 
God gives true freedom to humanity, leading to moral choice, uh, and true freedom to creation, leading to evolution. This is God's act of love, and this is why God did not just make heaven in the first place. These things are valuable, and God delights in him, in them. Uh, the third value, which is given through evolution, is the ability to move towards a goal. Now, I don't mean physically, but I mean ontologically or metaphysically towards a goal. And that, of course, just begs the question, where is evolution going? I would argue that evolution was moving towards developing a community of beings which carry God's image and amongst whom he would be made incarnate. The incarnation was not a contingency plan suddenly implemented when humanity sinned, but rather was one of the original purposes of creation. Creation was always headed towards the incarnation. Secondly, the creation um, is part of the journey towards new life. God's promise of a new creation is not a contingency plan either. The new or renewed creation, as described at the end of Revelation, was always part of the plan. I don't think that any theodicy can say this world is good without also pointing forward to the time when there will be no pain, no death, no tears, under some new and unimaginable reconstruction of the universe. Now, keep in mind that we do tend to imagine the new life is static in some ways. The values that are achieved here that I've argued in terms of freedom, growth, things like reproduction, are not imagined to exist there in the same way. The point is that in no way does saying that this is a good world undermine the Christian hope in the world to come. Actually, I think in some ways it can help our Christian walk. The spiritual growth coming from this world is seen most easily with the example of death. In the present world, death is the most poignant reminder of our creatureliness. Even while we grasp at immortality, we find that it is, in fact, always beyond our reach. The suffocating horror and fear that accompanies many of our encounters with death reminds us, finally, that we are not God. Yet it is in those moments of deepest agony that our need for the hope of resurrection is the strongest. So what do we do with death? Death remains a leap of faith from this life to the new life, a leap that God always intended. I'm speaking here of physical death without sin. I believe that our experience of death is horridly marred by sin and thus has become something other. Um, than God's original intention to death. But I wonder if we have seen in the lives of saints and martyrs a taste of what physical death was originally intended to be. We see how many of them approach death with peace, acceptance, even joy, to be taken into new life in the presence of God. I believe that this was the original intention of death, to be a transition, a final giving up of oneself into the enfolding arms of God. Our bodies go to decompose and support new life, while our trust is placed in the promise of the resurrected life. Now, this does not mean that we should not grieve death. Even Jesus, when he was at the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus knowing that he was about to raise him from the dead, wept openly. Encountering death should make us weep, just as the death of a sinless animal should cause us to grieve. But Christian hope makes us more human not less in this case. 
but we should also grieve differently, knowing that there's hope and life and renewal ahead. We know that physical death does not have the last word because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Every Easter, my church pulls out that old Charles Wesley hymn, Christ the Lord is risen today. And it includes in the third stanza, Paul's triumphal cry, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, for he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our path is not and never was to avoid pain and death, but to walk through them following our Lord and Savior. We are called to follow him in life and to follow him in death and to follow him in resurrection. To quote Wesley, ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Thank you very much. So, Paul is going to moderate uh, the questions for me. (laughs) Could you speak speak up? Absolutely. Yeah, the, the yeah, um, the, the Felix Culpa trap, as she's calling it, is part of the uh, Catholic Easter vigil where they say, oh, oh, lucky fall, oh, lucky, you know, oh, lucky sin that, that merited for us such a, such a great redeemer. And it does, but only in a limited way, because in this view, Christ was planning to come anyways. But now his role changed from simply incarnation to incarnated savior. Um, and so there is a sense in, in which it, it does draw on that, but it doesn't go quite as far as the Felix Culpa. We need to keep an eye on the time. Uh, you found it useful to uh, use the word bad instead of evil. Yeah. Can you do the same thing with the, the word good? Um, I've never thought of that. Uh, I, I have often struggled with the fact that there isn't a, a secondary thing. And so you have good and evil and good and bad and, and good seems to mean both. The development of something like that might, might actually be useful. Um, but I, I, as far as I know, I don't think anything like that exists except, I mean, you could use something like, I don't know, benevolent or something like that, but I, I'm not aware of a term. Maybe one more. I. Okay. Well, actually, as as you've seen, many theologians would in fact say that an earthquake is satanic, and that it is in fact evil. And so, part of what I'm doing is, is trying to advocate that that the coinage of that which came under sort of an ancient view of everything you know resulted from the fall of man in the garden is is erroneous so i mean that's that's exactly what i'm arguing against is is that it is satanic or something i'm afraid we've got to move on to the next speaker already um